0: Welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for another show. Of course, that's uh, assuming you've been with us before. In case you haven't, uh, let's introduce ourselves. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor and an author, and I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, just right outside of Portland. The church is located in Vancouver, uh, Vancouver, Washington. And I've been a real estate investor and a home improvement contractor, and I've even been a professor of philosophy and taught... Philosophy to undergraduates for about a decade. Anyway, that's enough about me.
1: How about going to you, Tom, and then on to Glenn? I'm Tom Price. I'm a teacher currently. I teach at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and other places, teach uh, theology, ethics, philosophy, and a few other things.
2: And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired professor um, of uh, early modern European history, uh, specializing in the Reformation. I'm also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and my main gig is as a ministry associate for Reflections Ministries. Okay, well, today is my day, and what we're going to talk about is
0: justice and reality. Justice and reality. And um, before I kick things off, I just want to say one last thing about uh, our new Patreon account. So you can follow the Theology podcast on Patreon. You can even become a monthly supporter of the podcast. But that's not really what I'm I'm interested in highlighting at the moment. What's really cool about this new Patreon account is if you're interested in listening in to a show being recorded, you can do that through Patreon. So if you uh, go to Patreon, I believe that there will be a way for you to access the show when it's being recorded. And you can even ask questions in the chat box and stuff like that. And we'll be able to see those questions and and perhaps even uh, if we haven't gotten so wrapped up in our conversation, actually read them and <laughs> <laughs> respond to them on the fly. Anyway, that's that's the idea. So uh, please check out our new Patreon page and uh, uh, at that Location. will let folks know when we're going to be recording, and if it's convenient for you to be part of our recording sessions in that manner, uh, we'd love for you to join us. Anyway, there'll be uh, there is a link in the show notes to the Patreon page. Anyway, let's jump into the subject. So, one of the things, of course, uh, when it comes to the to the to the uh, the subject of justice, is uh, there is a uh, implicit and oftentimes explicit uh, goal uh of treating everyone the same in other, in other words um, people should have this have the laws applied uh uniformly uh, and equally to everybody regardless of their say social background uh, level of education etc. Um, but there is a, a, a sort of a speed bump to this ideal um, in our quest to get to that goal. Uh, and that speed bump is reality. <laughs> you know, there are different ways that reality uh, sort of troubles this ideal or tr- gets in the way of uh, its pursuit. One of the things that reality presents us with is that we're physically not all created equal. Some of us are taller than others. Some people are better looking than others. Some people uh, are more gifted in certain ways than other people. And that's just the start. At an even more fundamental level, uh, the human race is uh, uh, dimorphic. It comes in two, two types. Uh, male and female, and there are things physically that men do that women don't do, and there are things that physically women can do that men can't do. I know this is all very radical and very, uh, I think, uh, unnerving to some people, but it's simply the case that women have babies <laughs> and men don't. I know I know that that's uh, that's news to some folks and triggers people, but but the reason why it triggers people is the very point of this episode it's because folks have an ideal uh, when it comes to their understanding of justice that's out of touch with certain physical realities and those physical realities just simply have to be either ignored or in some sense altered in order to uh accord with these uh, or this notion of justice that i just described Anyway, I want to get into that a little bit today, particularly in light of the recent uh, Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe. There are a lot of people who are unhappy because they believe that their rights have been uh, taken away or and that of course implies what I'm getting at that that justice doesn't uh, have to take into account uh, sort of intractable physical realities. Uh, things that distinguish people and make them different and necessarily uh, require people uh, being treated differently. But anyway, any thoughts that you guys have in response to the sort of the setup that I've just
1: uh, laid out? I mean, just just on the uh, just kind of running with some of the things you've said, um, there is I often see a kind of strong inconsistency that develops with people that on the one hand, they embrace the kind of idea of the human being as as having choice and their decision, all of the Enlightenment kind of autonomy um, as something that is being threatened and to, but it should be celebrated and therefore equally applied. But some of the same people have adopted also, for example, a, a radical kind of um, anti-science um, approach to things which was the main vehicle through which autonomy was actually expressed whether it's in 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 the you know we're seeing now the altercation of of the body and things like that but also um, you have this strange connection to the green movement which, is all about getting technology and human autonomy out of the way um, and and restoring things back to reality and the natural, um, all the while on the flip side, embracing this kind of notion that we are hindering people's rights if they apply it, if something puts a limit on them, their natural reality in terms of, of law, and, and things like that. Anyway, I don't, I don't know if that made a lot of sense, but that was one of the things that came up. Yeah, I
0: think it makes a lot of sense. I've noticed a remarkable inconsistency as well and almost a kind of inversion. So oftentimes with, you know, progressives, I'll use sort of just sort of the left-right language, progressive, conservative language that we're all comp- sort of accustomed to. With progressives, there is a sense in which um Nature is to be honored and protected in terms of its, uh, sort of unconscious, uh, and sort of, uh, sort of unaltered, un- uh, states. Uh, but when it comes to the, you know, human uh, body that no longer applies. And then you can get the reverse, uh, with some conservatives, some conservatives, uh, have no problem, uh, with regard to intervening in the natural order of things, uh, outside of the human sphere. But when it comes to our bodies, then they're the champions of, mm-hmm. uh, conservation and, mm-hmm. um, natural processes. And, and so I guess, I guess my thought is, is, is that there's probably room in both directions for some work <laughs> <laughs> here as we think about this stuff. But I was thinking primarily for the sake of our show, uh, in the direction of the human of the human body and some of the realities that we just can't change that are givens that we need to work with and our I'll give away my agenda um, I think that our understanding of justice needs to accord with physical reality it doesn't work the other way
2: yeah and uh, another thing that we should we should probably define terms a little bit more precisely um, I work for a while with Chuck Colson at, with prison fellowship and doing worldview stuff with him. And as a result, um, I, I've, I've ended up working with this idea of justice and, and from a worldview perspective. And what we have to do first is distinguish two kinds of justice. There's uh, retributive justice, which means if you do something wrong, how do you balance the scales? You know, what would, you know, um, that's uh, associated with criminal justice, things like that, but it's a, it's broader than that. Um, the other is distributive justice. And what we're dealing with here really falls in that category. Distributive justice has to do with how you allocate the goods of society um, uh, in you know, in some sort of sense of, of a fair way. Um, and there are a lot of different theories about what this looks like. Uh, What we're hearing now sort of across the board, even before you get into the Dobbs decision, is the idea of equity. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is the current definition of equity as it is being used is not the one that has historically been used with the issue of distributive justice. Equity today means everybody gets equal outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Equity historically meant that you get the goods of society in proportion to your contribution, the more in you it, contribute, it, the more you get back. Yeah, the, the weird thing
0: about it is those of us who understand equity in the latter sense I have been ten, kind of blindsided by this, the popular use because the, 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 the sort of the traditional understanding of the term equity that you just described actually is in complete sort of um, it contradicts the, the popular notion. So it's it's one of these things where you say, I believe in, in you know, equity and I'm thinking what you just described. Uh, that people get what they deserve. <laughs> right. Whereas,
2: the reason why, you know, th- what they're calling equity, they used to simply use the word equality, an right. equal distribution of the goods of society. The, they've chosen to use equity because people have recognized a long time ago that equality doesn't really work. And so, most discussions of distributive justice have focused around the idea of equity as historically understood. So what they're doing is they're co-opting the language, redefining it and using it in such a way that um, it looks like the older writers who talked about equity as the the proper uh, approach to to distributive justice are saying the same thing they are when they're not. They've changed the definition of the word, I think deliberately, in order to obfuscate the situation. Yeah, and I think
0: you know you, the statement you just made about equality not working well. It also sort of raises the, the question: uh, What do we mean by working? Uh, so, for example, if um, we talk about uh, say a game of basketball, um, there are a lot of things that play into why one team beats another team, um, and the but the, but if if we have sort of a, as, as sort of a starting point with regard to outcomes that uh, neither team should win, <laughs> that but uh, instead it should just be this. Uh, if you remember, you remember that game called the ungame? I don't <laughs> yes. know. It was it was like popular in the seventies. It was basically this sort of, I guess, hippie kind of idealistic uh, game, uh, or a game that was based on this ideal that no one should lose, and it was the dullest game you could possibly imagine because it, you know it just you're like, okay, nobody loses. All right, let's go do something else.
2: (laughs) So as, as another example, um, there's a story that goes around. It's probably apocryphal in which a professor uh, said that he was going to average all of the test scores and give everybody the same grade. (laughs) And, you know, at first there were some people who did the work and it sort of pulled the average up, but by the, by averaging the grades, their work was worth less because Correct. they got a lower grade. So they stopped working, and the entire class failed.
0: Or you <laughs> could say they all got an A, but no one actually scored any points because no one got anything right. But everything. But right. I, I get what you're saying. But if if so, yeah. you can have a race to
2: the bottom um, when you remove the incentives. Right, and that's why equality doesn't work as a form of distributive justice. Right. Now. The the reason why I brought this up is their idea was, and this goes back to the sexual revolution. This is going back to the seventies, um, arguably the sixties, but but definitely in the seventies. The argument is that women should be able to participate in sexual activities on the same terms as men. Right. And now and, you know, since men don't really necessarily have any long term consequences themselves for engaging in sexual activity, women shouldn't either. But because of biological realities, there's a possibility of pregnancy and therefore abortion is necessary as a form of equity so that women can be as sexually active as men with his with without consequence.
0: Yeah, with as as few consequences as men experience. But that kind of gets me to my point that what we end up with is a kind of Procrustean bed Mm -hmm. uh, where something is cut away. And in this case, a human uh, being is cut away. So we have a developing baby who is destroyed in order to sustain this ideal of justice. And it, it works in different ways in different areas if we say that well you you remember harrison bergeron the, the uh the short story um, <laughs> and and in that short story you know um oh who was it? kurt vonnegut so vonnegut um in that short it's a great it's a great story and it's it's available online and it's very short but it's uh, very potent uh, he envisions a future in which equality is uh, what we've just described, in other words, equal outcomes. You know, nobody to, has an advantage over anyone else, which necessarily creates a kind of handicapping situation. So you had the handicapper general, Diana Moon Glampers. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know that she's a lesbian, <laughs> but anyway, um, but in the in the uh, in the story. Uh, Harrison Bergeron is the most talented, uh, able man in the history of the world. He's a, he's a genius. He's physically uh, awesome. And he's public enemy number one. So he has to uh, be handicapped in a, a wide range of ways in order to prevent him from having any advantage over anyone else. So he has uh, earphones that scatter his thoughts because it would be unfair for him to be able to think things that other people can't think. Um, he has to have weights on his body to slow him down because it would be unfair for him to be stronger or faster than anybody else. And so he's just like this like this comic uh, sort of uh, figure. He actually he's so good looking, they make him wear a clown nose, <laughs> just all these different things. Uh, and he breaks free. He he gets out of prison and rips all of these handicaps off of himself and declares himself emperor of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Diana Moon kills him with a shotgun. But anyway, on, on <laughs> national television in front of his parents <laughs> who are watching the show, but I, I've given it all away, <laughs> but th- 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 this is the absurdity that we're, that we, we must re- be reduced to if we take this really to heart. So, um, My proposal, I know it's radical. uh, My proposal is that we, uh, in some sense, uh, alter our definition of justice to be more uh, sort of in accord with the reality that we live in. And in one respect, that reality has to do with the differences between men and women, which necessarily means that there are going to be certain things that apply to men and certain things that apply to women, because we are different. Anyway. There, I, I, I've been canceled all across America
1: right now. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, a good, good chunk of America doesn't any longer know what it means to be a man or a woman. So, <laughs> right. I mean, what you could, what you said, could, may or may not be offensive because we don't know what those things mean. So, I, I, you know, to take, to take offense at anything said about it itself assumes already a binary. <laughs> right, that's right. That's right. And so anyway, but um, one of the things I think b- before jumping into some of the, the other themes you just mentioned there is when you talk about the severing that goes on um, with, you know, with, with of course, the, the human life um, and, and the mother, there are several other th- aspects of reality that are getting severed at the same time. Um, One, of course, we already noted, I think, from Glenn's point is once the model becomes autonomous, you know, the the autonomous male, if you will, um, then you've created now the autonomous female. You have now a a fracture um, in humanity um, between between male and female, of course. And then you have a unrealistic definition of what it means to be human autonomous. Um, so now you have you have a fracture and then you have a consequence is now the the, the child's being severed, um, you know, culture of death. But then you have all the social ramifications that go with that. So the reality of cutting against a created moral order um, and that is where you start to have the social ramifications um, of broken families of children that do end up getting born. But the, the mother wants to still be. Um, autonomous and the father wants nothing to do with it. The state comes in to basically um, fill that gap. And so, so justice now, now we talk about the issue of equity. Um, what you have now, a war against kind of the classic family, is really a war, uh, you know, to, to this new kind of equity, because if they can, and they're working very hard, especially the school systems, to redefine, now they want to eliminate the term mother and father, um, they, they're going after this because if they, if they can, the advantages you have of having a classic natural family compared to the disadvantages of not having that or having, having a broken situation, um, those gaps cannot be made up for unless you bring the, nat- the natural family, the classic family down. And it's similar. There's this talk of white privilege and and all this stuff. Yeah, there are advantages from the history and all of that. But on the other hand, what they want to do rather than create conditions for others to advance um, is they want to bring, you know, bring one group down to lift another group up. And, and of course, I'm using group the way they do, not the way reality is structured. Um, And so I think so I think what we have going on with that, that that issue um, of, of abortion is already tied to a whole web of things that have been fighting the moral and created order, trying to use a kind of false definition of autonomous human being um, at the center of it, and then, um, and then unable to deal with it other than in more radically oppressive ways to achieve some sense of justice. Yeah,
0: which gets me back to this question, you know, uh, what is justice? And how do we understand it? Is it something that exists uh, as an abstraction and an ideal um, that is superimposed on reality? Or is it in some sense uh, something that uh, necessarily has to be in harmony with reality? Now, just the very fact that I used the word reality challenges a number of the assumptions of, uh, you know, sort of the modern outlook that that there is something that exists outside our heads, that things are not merely socially constructed, dimorphism, for example. So binaries, so so this war on binaries. Well, uh, this binary that we're talking about with regard to male and female just simply is the case, not just for the human species, but for all mammals. (laughs) And so it's just simply the case. And um, you might uh, present this as as sort of an offense Uh, that needs to be redressed uh, because it doesn't accord with your notion of justice. But the problem is, is, is not reality. It's your notion of justice. Your your notion of justice needs to be informed by the realities that we're given. But this brings us back to kind of the fundamental problem uh, of givenness. So when I use the term given, that implies there's a giver, that there is uh, some, uh, some wisdom and, uh, uh, benevolence that informs the gift and in the giving that this isn't just a malevolent uh sort of act now it doesn't mean that we necessarily see the good off the bat uh maybe we long for something different and we just get are given something we didn't ask for that's often the case in life isn't it i mean when i was a kid uh christmas I, I'm, I imagine I'm not all that different than anyone else, but I would make a long list of things that I wanted for Christmas, and uh, often coming to thousands of dollars <laughs> <laughs> with, with the, in expense. I would just go through the you know the the, the catalog from Sears, whatever, and anything <laughs> that struck my eye, I I put a little you know mark on the page, and that would that I add it up and and I'd hand it to my parents and say, here you go, <laughs> and then I would get socks.
2: I never put socks
0: on my 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 list, but they were there. They were given, and my parents loved me uh, and gave me my socks, and they expected me to be grateful. But I, I honestly, I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't grateful for socks. I was looking for the GI Joe headquarters or something like that. <laughs> and uh, now, every once in a while, my parents would actually give me something I wanted, uh, <laughs> but very often uh, that wasn't the case. And that's the way things are in the world that we live in. Uh, We have a God that has given us a number of things that we need to learn to be grateful for. So uh, the fact that women uh, have uh, not just simply the biological equipment to bear children, but actually have a kind of moral obligation to do so. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, and men, likewise, uh, have the ability to procreate and take responsibility for their children. When those children are conceived and born, uh, there's a moral component. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, and th- this is one of the things that we've talked about before, although it's been a while, I think. Um, teleology. You know, one of the, you know, when we talk about things that are given, we usually think about them as things that are past. You know, that we have received yeah. these things. But one of the givens about our nature is teleology. That is to say that there are many things about us that have a natural end, a natural purpose. And when it comes to our sexuality, well, what do we call the, what is the biological term for the system that's involved in that? Uh, It's the reproductive system. You know, that tells us right away that that the, the natural end of sex, the, net, the proper teleology for it, is, uh, is reproduction. And when we, are, when we lose sight of that, when we lose sight of this as one of the givens, one of the natural ends, uh, then it's not surprising when, when we're denying reality biology, all of those kinds of things at that level, it's not surprising that we get screwed up in terms of thinking about um, about justice, equality, and th- those sorts of things as well in this arena. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it- yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. I can yeah. see you're chomping at the bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I, I'm
1: kind of I, I wanted to do a little commentary on what Glenn was saying, because I think a related point is we also live in a very confusing moment in many ways. Um, but one is we have we have what Lewis would often talk about is kind of the, the two different views of humanity that have been been uh produced if you will in the western world as it rejected the christian uh, vision or even the classic, the classic visions uh philosophical one is that we're basically angels right that we transcend the body um in the true self is the angelic self the spiritual the feeling depending on however you do it and then the other side is the deterministic that we're nothing but brutes just maybe a higher caliber so we're determined by our embodied endowment Um, And rather than the psychosomatic unity, um, which is to be in harmony, um, that's the classic Christian vision, um, we have a war going on. Um, We have a war on one side for those who think we're basically angels trapped in a body that we need to somehow transcend or bring the body in conformity to our, you know, our, our Gnostic self, our ghost in the machine. So technology becomes a vehicle through which we can bring the the body, which is raw material um, for for this view into into um, harmony with it, and so you see this with maybe the trans uh, agenda of altering the body, taking certain hormones, changing it, but then you have the flip side that you could say it was used more for maybe classic arguments for for homosexuality, which was well, in my current embodied state, this is my natural inclination, and so 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 you have. Even in the, the big kind of colorful rainbow, oppositional anthropologies going on, which are going to end up becoming a war at some point. But I think these same issues ha- have been paralleled where the male with the male female, um, and and, and the ripping it from the procreative, um, and I think Protestants didn't help by by kind of jettisoning the procreative as, as a choice. Um, rather than than um, a commission, that there is there is freedom in Christ. For example, for certain peculiar vocations and calling, but those are rare and they're not the norm. Right. Yeah. If they are the
2: norm, then we go the way of the Shakers, and we're all yes. dead in a generation. Yeah. So yeah. another ahead, thing that's ahead, that's worth noting here is uh, well, how do you define healthcare? Now I know we're moving a little bit off of the the justice issue, but I think it's it's connected here. How do you define I get, I get. healthcare? I would argue that a good basic definition of healthcare is doing what is necessary to allow the body to perform its natural functions properly. Under those circumstances, if you take that definition, which I think is a reasonable one, neither abortion nor gender affirming surgery or treatments are healthcare. Because what they're designed to do is to introduce dysfunction into the body so that it cannot fulfill its natural purposes. Yeah, and I think, you
0: know, underneath our convictions concerning uh, health and nature, we have an understanding that there is a creator who, in his wisdom, has... Uh, ordered things in the ways that we've traditionally recognized as natural. I want to go back though to a statement I made a minute ago concerning uh, the moral obligation to bear children, uh, because I know that some people probably choked on their coffee when I met, when I said that. So mm-hmm. I'd like to, to, to sort of flesh it out a little bit. So as human beings, uh, we owe our existence to our ancestors. Uh, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. And uh in a sense uh we carry forward um you know the 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 actual uh inheritance that we've received biologically from them and we carry that forward that's one dimension of of this uh discussion that i think it's worth just keeping in mind kind of filing on the shelf but the other dimension is the fact that we are also social creatures in the moment so none of us uh are capable of um, sustaining a uh, a, a really rewarding and, uh, enriched life just on our own. I mean, even, even, if we, even if we go out into the wilderness and, you know, we, uh, cut down some trees and create a cabin and all that kind of stuff. We, what do we do? What do we bring it with us into the wilderness? Uh, if not the tools, the knowledge that allows us to do those things. In other words, we're not creating things from scratch through just experimentation. Uh, we bring with us, uh, a, a treasure trove of knowledge that we've received uh, bec- from in interacting with the people around us. Furthermore, an economy is something in which you know, you've got many people doing their part to help enrich the whole. Now, I know that we don't engage in our economic activities with that explicitly in mind on a day-to-day basis. We're thinking mainly about our own welfare, but it's because we are working together that uh, we enrich each other. Related to this, um, children are absolutely fundamental to a healthy social order and economy. You remove them and the entire thing collapses. Um, And it's not just something that you experience as an individual, say, if you didn't have kids and they're not there to take care of you. If there is a sort of a dearth, a birth dearth on the culture at large, the culture at large will suffer. And we are uh, in the early stages of experiencing the breakdown of that sort of, um, you know, sort of pay it forward (laughs) when you have a kid. You are contributing to the larger order of things. Now, of course, you can uh, raise children poorly. Uh, You can um, harm them uh, in ways that make it uh, make it make, you know, sort of the, the result is. Uh, unfortunate, but uh, it's just simply a fact that this is the way things work, which means that bearing children is not simply a private decision. Uh, the choice to, or not to bear children has a larger social sort of, uh, uh, set of consequences that follow. And what I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm helping us to see, or attempting to, to help our listeners, uh, see that, um, our understanding of justice doesn't accord with that physical reality either. Uh, it's been reduced to sort of maximizing my personal, you know, choice, uh, uh, choices and uh, sort of actual, you know, sort of being free to realize uh, my own, I guess, dreams or whatever. It's not dealing with the reality that we find ourselves in. Um, we are all uh enjoying the benefits or the consequences of decisions that other people make every day. We are simply social creatures. So we're biologically connected to the sort of the the past with, you know, the fact that we uh, are who we are and where we are today because of other people. But we're also here today doing what we're doing in the moment, with the people that we share the world with and justice has to keep all these things in mind, or it's just simply not just, it's just insane. If you you get my drift.
2: Anyway, uh, (laughs) as as, as an example, um, back in the 1970s, um, late seventies, maybe into the eighties, it looked like Japan was going to take over the world economically <laughs> I remember that do you remember, uh radically. back to but do you remember back to the future
0: where where uh what was the character that was in back to the future the the kid that goes uh you know back in time or he goes forward in time yeah and it and he he's like an employee of some Japanese mm-hmm. executive and uh to look back on that now it's it's just laughable
2: um, yeah. And Well, theoretically, at one point, Tokyo was more valuable real estate wise than I think it was the entire United States <laughs> that's right. um, yeah, that's or a significant percentage of it. But right. so so what what happened now? The Japanese, it's still a powerhouse economy, but nobody's thinking the Japanese are going to take over the world economically. We're looking more at China or whatever. Uh, although China's got its own issues, but that's a different matter. Japan has been below replacement rate for so long now that they're going to run out of Japanese Yeah, you know, it it, i mean just just to put it you know bluntly, no economy ever grew with a shrinking population
0: yeah, and that I think is a is a reality that many. Uh, progressives uh, just never consider or factor into their understandings not just of justice but in terms of human good and i I came across a couple of data uh, points related to japan that i think are just uh, shocking one is is that japan loses about half a million people a year a year so it's in pretty precipitous decline uh it's been Uh, In a kind of uh, no-growth mode since the early 90s, it's just been kind of treading water. Furthermore, I just read this past week that uh, 30,000 Japanese die alone in their apartments, undiscovered. And the only reason that people know that uh, there's a dead body in the apartment is the smell. Mm. 30,000 people are discovered every year just by the smell. That's, that's a
2: stunning, uh, and and there's actually a business now in Japan that, that exists to clean out those departments. That's right.
0: Now, lest we think that, um, we can like look down our noses at, at the Japanese, they're just ahead of the curve on this. We're all on this same trajectory. Every part of the world. The only part of the world that I believe, uh, this is not the case is sub Saharan Africa. But everywhere else in the world, thats I mean, even Mexico is not at replacement level anymore. Uh, their, their population is in decline. So the people who propose uh, solving our problems in the United States with immigration are just kicking the can down the road. People come to the United States, they work hard, and in one generation, they're as bad as we are. <laughs> yeah. You know, in fact, their fertility rate goes as low, if not lower, than the, than the rest of the American population.
1: Yeah. And You're seeing this in, in even, you know, even even high population Latin American co- countries. I mean, families that, you know, just a generation ago had huge amounts of children. Um, now their children are not having a lot of them are not having any children, not just uh, not just a couple or one, but none. And, and they're celebrating all this. And I don't think they have a clue what's around the corner, um, and for them in their own life, but also what's, what's, uh, coming within a generation or two. Yeah. My, my conviction. And one of the reasons why,
0: you know, I, I, decided on the subject for the show today is that we are going to recover the hard way, a more, I think, uh, realistic understanding of justice, particularly as it relates to some of these matters that we're talking about right now. So in an odd way, uh, the recent decision uh, overturning Roe may 20, 30 years down the road be looked back upon as like one of the most enlightened things that people could have done at the at the, the point in our history that anyone could have done. It was maybe maybe it's even an inflection point. Um, if we see, so right now uh, the second largest generation in American America's okay. history, the millennials, uh, are – Uh, At the childbearing stage of life, the baby boomers, you know, we've, we've uh, passed that we're all retiring and taking, you know, our knowledge and our skills with us into retirement. Maybe they won't let us retire (laughs) because of the need to keep the the machinery running. But um, nevertheless, that's the situation we find ourselves in if the millennials don't. And by the way, the millennial, um, the millennials in the United States are an anomaly, uh, in the world. So the baby boom generation was not, uh, nearly as a, a, a fruitful phenomenon in other parts of the world. So, uh, people, baby boomers in say, Europe just didn't have kids like, uh, baby boomers in the States did. Baby boomers in the States didn't have as many kids as their parents did. But they had more kids than, say, people in, you know, Germany or other places in Europe or Asia, particularly Asia. I mean, um, I think that the, the the fertility rate in South Korea is under one. I think it's at point eight. So what happens with this is there's kind of a, a cascading effect. Um, each generation moving forward and so unless there's a sudden like surge of fertility unless say for example the the the, the millennials you know averaged three children per woman um the, the situation will continue to decline if so even though we've got a fairly large relative to the rest of the world uh, uh you know group of millennials unless they get you know the uh the baby bug and and get you know productive quick um <laughs> the thing is just going to continue to, to uh sort of uh slide uh, going forward and what what that means and this is where i think uh so like, like years ago when conversations concerning reproductive health or you know just having children or the sexual revolution, when these things would come up and say the 60s, 70s, I remember people would immediately go to the social costs and would talk about those things. If everybody does that, this is what will follow. That's what I remember people talking in that way. No one does that anymore. Hmm. No one, no one seems to have any sense. Of the whole or the implications of the behavior of a particular generation and how that will affect the whole everybody's just sort of like completely out of touch with anything outside their own heads it's just amazing
1: yeah the the only time you see it is a very abstract relationship to you know creation or or nature um you know the, the kind of for some reason they want to um make sure the planet is good for generations to come, but they're not replenishing it with generations to come. And so (laughs) in in many ways there, you see this oddity, this this really, uh, there is this, The strangeness to a lot of the kind of hyper green agenda, in the sense that it has this deep care for creation, but it sees the human as kind of the the culprit. So they have a kind of functioning doctrine of the fall and depravity of humanity. They just don't have anything redemptive, or they don't see any imago dei in humanity. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you don't see the same people talking about how significant it is for the planet. To actually be reproducing, you see them all trying to get rid of humanity, lower
2: it, um, population control. Right. Yeah. Right. Have, have you ever noticed that people who say meat is murder never want to arrest lions? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> right,
1: right. You
2: know, I mean that, that, that now that by itself <laughs> demonstrates that they understand that human beings are different from animals. Mm-hmm. We have a degree of moral culpability moral responsibility whatever you want to call it that other animals don't have and they will say that that's not true but if it isn't i mean lions don't care if they're eating endangered species (laughs) i've noticed that (laughs) so you know i mean i think i you know i think that even there they may reject the idea of the imago dei, but they they sneak it in the back door because they argue we are in fact responsible. Confirm. Now, because we are responsible, though, that's why we've got to call the herd. Um, we need fewer of us here because we are squandering the planet's resources. Every one of us uses way more than we should, and therefore we need to lower the population so as not to render the earth uninhabitable. That's their understanding. Yeah. The funny thing is, I know otherwise intelligent people who are still thinking we're living in Paul Ehrlich's population bomb.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's a kind of a hangover from the Club of Rome in the early 70s and all that kind of disaster film yeah. stuff from, like, you know, Soylent Green that, that really has, like, uh, captured the imagination and just won't let go it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you what you say sometimes uh, with some of these folks now this brings up you know the relationship between our notions uh, and convictions concerning justice and abstraction and sanity and all that kind of stuff There's that great line that's been attributed to i don 't know how many different people, but whom the gods would destroy they first make mad <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's a, It's a great line because what it implies is that Um, The destruction is self-inflicted. So what what we're dealing with right now in our society is not so much a, you know, uh, you know, a meteor falling from the sky or sulfur, you know, raining down on Gomorrah or something like that. Uh, What we're dealing with is just simply the sort of the outworkings of our convictions. And uh, we're going to experience uh, sort of the fruit of those convictions. You know, we, you know, the idea of you reap what you sow. We've sown a certain seed, and now we're reaping a certain crop. Um, is there any hope for us? Can we come to our senses? If history is our is our guide, um, there will be people who go down to the bitter end, denying reality, and just will die. And it's almost as though, you know, that a generation has to pass, and we saw this, you know, in the Exodus Uh, generation just has to pass in order for another generation to emerge that is able to learn is learn the lesson that was uh, on display with the previous generation will the younger people be able to disengage from the stupidity of their elders (laughs) that's that's Mm -hmm. that's what I'm wondering about maybe you have some thoughts on that I I my my hopes um, at least at the moment are not high
2: yeah yeah. Another example, by the way, that most people ignore, uh, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. Um, I know the plans that I have for you, you know, that thing that you find on coffee mugs and plaques in Christian <laughs> If you read it in context, what he's saying is, settle down, you're going to be there a while. It's going to be 70 years before you return to translate that into real life, you're going to die in exile. Yep, the plans yep. I have to give you a hope in the future are for your kids and grandkids. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to yeah, die Jer- in exile.
0: Yeah, Jeremiah 29 may be the mis- most misused passage of Scripture in <laughs> the Christian faith. It's misused in the this, this sort of pietistic, nationalistic way that you just described, because sometimes people will use it as uh, sort of a... Call to repentance and so forth, but the other thing that is is the the progressive you know, sort of like cool table, you know, gospel coalition, you know, sort of um, you know city centered outlook, missional folks misuse it as well. The, they'll use that you know pray for the city that you find yourself in because in its welfare you'll find your own, but they never sort of like own up to the fact that the people who are in that city. Didn't want to be there. <laughs> in other words, it wasn't like this was a mission that they went on to save Babylon.
2: Yeah, yeah and, and think about Babylon in Scripture. It's yeah. the only place that Israel has any interactions with that God never says He's going to save. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fun. It's fun to think about. In yeah. fact, it becomes the sort of the
0: the the, the emblem of uh, Mm. the, you know, everything that's wrong. And, uh, you know, going for particularly, you know, as we look in Revelation and so forth, but, but it's fascinating to me, like when people say, oh, we should be, you know, dedicated to the city. Remember Jeremiah 20, 29. I'm like, well, are you implying that New York is Babylon and that we've been like sent there as a punishment (laughs) (laughs) that we're in exile in Babylon? And that's the reason why, uh, you know, we ought to pray for the city. Or are you saying that something different. Well, you're saying something different. They're taking everything out of context. These are the people who are supposed to be all about context and nuance (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, deep thinking. And just this use is just as horrific as any misuse of scripture that I can think of. (laughs)
2: the, 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 The point of bringing it up is the generation has to die. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So,
0: so Gospel Coalition people, are you telling us a generation must die in the city as uh, you know punishment for their wickedness?
2: <laughs> well, or, or or in this case, you know, the generation that does stupid things and that commits themselves to doing stupid things might have to die off before people before the next generation will realize the mistakes of their elders and move on. Yeah, and I think that's the case, and it's quite discouraging for, you know, those of
0: us who are part of, uh, you know, the generation that did all the stupid stuff. You know, so, you know, you know, we are part of that generation yeah. that's under yep. God's uh, judgment.
1: Yeah, and we see now also the, you know, I think— the attraction to totalitarian impulse of these, this younger crowd, um, all in the name, as though it's uh, you know the, the, these kind of elite agendas, if you will, um, are, are somehow a new Moses that's going to liberate. And and you you just it, you cannot be a prophet loud enough to let them know really what what is uh, sorrowfully in store for them if they continue down that path.
0: Well, it's sort of like you know they're they're watching their parents uh, under God's wrath, and they've decided to double down on dumb. Instead of repenting, yeah. they've said, "No, the, our parents didn't take this far enough. We need to take yeah. it even farther."
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're free, freed, free, free from the father, rather than <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. right. <laughs> So, I, I yeah. want to get back, I guess, just
0: to to this idea of. Uh, getting our notion of justice or understanding of justice, uh, in harmony with certain realities that we find ourselves given. So it would mean necessarily then that there really are double standards that are just, if you get my drift, you know, the term double standard is something that folks just dismiss as by definition unjust. But if there are real differences between men and women, then there ought to be standards that apply to men as men and women as women. And then, you know, what would that imply? Well, you know, one of those standards would be uh, with relationship to the sin of abortion, uh, a uh, set of uh, rules that apply to women because they bear children. Men don't bear children. Men sire children and therefore, Uh, there should be another set of rules that apply to men uh, who sire children. So it's not as though one side has a set of rules and the other side doesn't. Historically, uh, what we've done is we've required men to care for the children, provide for the children that they helped bring into the world, right? So abortion was a, was a kind of Procrustean bed. Just so the, the bed of Procrustus, just so folks know, if they're not they're not familiar with the story, uh, everybody's supposed to fit on the bed of Procrustus. And if you're too long, too bad for you, your legs get chopped off or whatever. Everyone must fit on the bed of Procrustus. So the Procrustean bed is a standard that everybody has to uh, conform to that is out of touch with physical realities. So, um... That's what we've been attempting to do. And who has paid the price? Well, obviously, uh, children uh, who have been killed in the womb have paid the price. But I also think that there have been uh, other uh, costs. Um, We wouldn't have the demographic winter that we're entering into if there had not been a uh, very proactive approach to disposing of children um, like we saw for the last, you know, almost 50 years. The other thing is that I think that women have paid a price physically. Um, you know, there are certain physical uh, consequences that follow abortion. Uh, and we're just beginning to, I think, to fully appreciate how those uh, implications affect health. Um, and then there's just the social cost, uh, ancillary That's cost. and psychological for women. Yep, the psychological costs. And then for men, um, this sort of uh, get-out-of-jail-free card that you can use um, so that you don't actually take responsibility for your behavior. Uh, you can just say, okay, well, there is no, no cost to me so long as this girl does what I want her to do, which is have an abortion.
1: Um, so there, there are other costs
0: um, yeah. that we're paying.
1: And and I think you also see the the way in which that permeates itself in certain other types of sin. For example, the way in which uh, men often cut off from responsibility and and held not to a higher calling, um, start to see sexuality as gratification, exploitative lust. Looks at the body that way, and then you have the flip side: the female who now loathes their looks, their body, their 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 embodiedness. Um, you see young girls shriek at the idea that they're going to they could have a baby you know and and so you've created this this kind of disgust with um, the 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 natural gifts that we have as as the kind of creatures we are um, made good and then you see the children that are allowed to survive um, have no way to navigate they don't have clear cut the, the, the you know again everything's been made so fluid and they have to pick there's no worse burden than having to bear this Uh, unpremised choice of, um, of having to basically self define, um, the fact that we've been defined, the fact that we've been named are two of the gifts we have as creatures. And when we've taken this away, we wonder why the children are uh, on all of these, um, medications and depressed and only have these grand visions uh, even if they're hated by the rest of the populace to do something harmful to themselves or others to be recognized. And I think this all goes back to that, that same um, not holding the right kind of responsibilities to the kind of creatures we are and the byproducts, the
2: consequences of us not, not uh, carrying through on that. Yeah. Yeah, and I would add one other cost that that is all too frequently ignored, and that's that abortion has also historically been a favorite tool of eugenicists. Yes. Yeah. You know, so right now, more babies, more black babies are aborted than born in New York. Yeah. Most Planned Parenthood clinics are in poor areas, and they say, well, that's because the poor need need this, except they're in poor black areas, not poor white areas. Right, right. Um, Margaret Sanger was a known eugenicist. And, uh, you know, this is worth another show later, but another cost that we don't talk about often enough, if we're really interested in racial justice, we should be fighting tooth and nail against abortion because it is being used to keep the black population down because historically the eugenicists said they're undesirables. We don't want them. Yeah. I, uh, I think uh,
0: George Grant has a book that just came out, uh, talking about Margaret Sanger. Uh, I think it was killer angel. It's the title of it. I yeah. think you can get it over at Canon press. Hmm. Yeah. And then, and then of course there are other ways in which, um, just these differences, uh, should so if if our understanding is informed if our understanding of justice is informed by the physical realities these givens then it'll be reflected in our laws um, and it'll be uh, our laws will be uh, sort of intended to reinforce the 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 goods that are in accord with these realities that uh, inform justice and and this, this would create a whole different sort of, I guess, uh, jurisprudence, uh, kind of uh, an approach to law uh, and even, um, you know, uh, well, it, affects, it would affect everything. And so my hope is that an ability to, to recover or an interest in recovering uh, a notion of justice or an understanding of justice that's informed by, the, by, the, by reality, physical reality, would have a host of positive uh, effects you know, uh, that could play themselves out for a period of time. Anyway, that's all I had to say about, about the subject. Um, but is there anything you guys want to add before we wrap up the
2: show today? Yeah, I, I, I would just... Your, your comment about double standards mm-hmm. didn't sit well with me. I think the standard is You take responsibility for your actions and you take appropriate action with regard to the consequences of your actions. For men, that means standing up and being fathers. For women, it means not aborting your kids, having them. I would say that the principle that's there, the standard is is constant for both of them, but it applies in different ways to the different uh, sexes. That would be, I I would be more comfortable thinking about it that way. So like two standards,
0: (laughs) but but, no, I I know what you're getting. I'm I'm having a little fun with you. (laughs) 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 Anyway, anything else you want to say, Tom?
1: No, I, th- I think, uh, I think, I mean, anything I would say would be uh, up for another sh- whole show. So uh, I think I'll just save it, save it and do another show on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, thank you for listening to the
0: Theology Podcast. We appreciate the fact that uh, you've uh, gotten to this point. You're actually listening to my voice right now at the very end of the show. And uh, we want to just thank those who are listening, who give on a regular basis to to the show There are a range of ways to do that. We have people who give to us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and that's a great way to do it. We have folks who give to us uh, through other uh, platforms, and we're glad for that too. There's this new Patreon page. Uh, I encourage you to just visit it because it'll make you laugh for for no other reason. Uh, There are uh, levels at which a person could support the show on a month-to-month basis, and uh, my favorite is Rousseau's assassin. If you want to see <laughs> what Rousseau's assassin looks like, you need to go to the Theology Pugcast uh, Patreon page. And anyway, with those things in mind, um, well, I do want to say one last thing. We've got a we've got a, an event coming up in September that my church is sponsoring. It's a conference, and the conference is entitled negative world or welcome to negative world and we've got a great host of speakers um, aaron wren will be with us at the church and uh, james wood will be there the former editor from uh, first things magazine and then joe rigney the uh, president of bethlehem seminary and college in minneapolis will also be one of the speakers and it's going to be on the 9th and 10th of september and we'll put a a link to that as well in the show notes. We'd love to have you with us if you want to spend a few days in uh, the Pacific Northwest with us. We'd love to have you. Anyway, that's it for now. Bye Bye bye.
2: Bye bye.